Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. I'm your host, W.J. Sheehan. Hello, everybody, and thank you for once again joining us on what is going to be yet another power-packed episode of our show. Today, in our Cryptids in the News and History and Other Oddities segment, Kevin once again is traveling back in time to the 1920s, bringing to the table through his investigative prowess yet another fantastic tale of Bigfoot from yesteryear. And in part two, I'm going to put the fear of God in you with a spine-tingling attack that was waged against a couple of unsuspecting hunters that you will not want to miss. And finally, we will be opening up our listeners' mail and discussing the questions and comments sent in by listeners such as yourself. But before I hand this off to my brother, I want to read you a quote. Please do listen attentively. Are you ready? Here is a quote. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Do you know who said that? Of course you don't, you pea brain. It was Carl Sagan when he was asked about the UFO phenomena. And I believe, given the same statement that Carl has just made, that the extraordinary proof in regards to the existence of Bigfoot has already been obtained. However, then we have to look at what is the truth, because after all, this is what divides the masses as to the existence or non-existence of the creature. In a courtroom, you have a group of jurors. They can have a split decision. They're deemed to be a hung jury, all having been presented the same evidence, and yet half think the evidence was inadequate, while the other half thinks it was good enough to convict. The local news network in my area regularly presents pictures taken from a variety of cameras in the street, doorbell cameras, wherever they may be. They post them in the hopes that someone will recognize the individual or individuals in the picture who are generally associated with some type of evil deed. Nobody ever apologizes for the poor and sometimes excellent quality of the pictures. They're quite simply all they have to present and they show them to us. And yet, given the same situation regarding Bigfoot, film footage, castings, whatever the evidence may be, people say that the pictures are too blurry, they're too clear to be true. And I ask you one simple question, why? Why is there a double standard when it comes to the photographs and images of Bigfoot as, to oppose, as opposed to the images that are put forth virtually about everything else that we see. And now, just before I hand this off to my brother who's waiting in the wings, keep in mind that your purchase of one of these books that I've written, whether it's an ebook or paper book form, format, helps us to fuel what it is we're doing here. And it's graciously received on my end if you should purchase one for yourself or as a gift for somebody else, you would be doing us and yourselves a great favor. And now, let's get ready to rumble. <laughs> In the blue corner, at nine feet, five inches, weighing in at 1,598 pounds from parts unknown, Bigfoot, Bigfoot, <laughs> and... In the red corner, at six feet two inches, weighing in at a picayune 220 pounds. <laughs> From North Carolina, my brother, Kevin Sheehan. Sheehan. Love the echo. Picayune. I'll tell you what, a lot of people that run into me, they won't think I'm picayune, but I like it. Listen. At 220 versus 1598, there's not yeah. much left on the bone. 
That's picky you, and I'll give it to you. <laughs> hey, don't forget, you were talking about the quality of images and video. Don't forget how everyone talks about why are the, uh, when someone has a video account of a Bigfoot sighting, they often complain that the video is kind of shaky. You know, not that not that you or I would be shaking if we ran into a nine-foot hairy man in the forest. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a, <laughs> you know, but I mentioned that news broadcast by me, and they truly always are uh, presenting uh, pictures in the hopes that somebody will come forward identifying the person involved in this hit-and-run or a crime or a rip-off at a house. And some of these images are really fleeting. I mean, there's really nothing there. And uh, still they post it in hopes that you may recognize this SUV or the guy with the hood on. Uh, And a lot of times there's really nothing there to see. A black hoodie, some type of emblem on the back, uh, a pair of red sneakers. Uh, And yet they post them in the hope that somebody will say, yes, I recognize that. And yet... We see these images of Bigfoot running through the mountains, crossing a field here and there. uh, And a lot of people out there say it's all bogus. It's fake. Yep, I I agree, Bill. You know, it's it's a different perspective for different situations. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you got for us today, bro, in our cryptids in the news segment here? Yeah, so we got a good uh, throwback today. Um, This week, we're going to go back to an early sighting and uh, written account of Bigfoot that occurred in the summer of 1924 in southwestern Washington. So, you know, this is uh, one of the hotbeds for Bigfoot sightings. This one back in 1924, and it was on the edge of the Lewis River on the eastern flank of Mount St. Helens. Of course, this was before the top blew off of Mount St. Helens. Yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to be uh, next to Mount St. Helens when the top blew off. No, no. So, <laughs> so this account was originally reported in the Oregonian newspaper on July 16th, 1924. So, you know, by the way, the Oregonian, for folks not familiar with the Pacific Northwest, it's one of the premier newspapers. So uh, it's not like it's the Weekly World News or something like that. It's, it's a periodical that's known for accurate news. Right. It's a legitimate uh, local paper in that region. Exactly. And the headline on this July 16th, going back to 1924, read, Fight with Big Apes Reported by Miners. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And then the subheadlines go, Fabled Beasts Are Said to Have Bombarded Cabin. One of the animals said to appear like huge gorilla is killed by party. Wow, that's fantastic. So yeah. these guys were armed, and they took a shot at this creature. Oh, yeah, they're miners out in the middle of nowhere, right, in yeah. southwestern Washington. I mean, even today, I would venture that there's not much around in that part of Washington. Oh, uh, no, this is like no man's land. You know, these guys had to have nerves of steel just to go out there, and a the total self-reliance on their skill set uh, going into this uh, alone and I'm sure they had supplies, but who knows for how long. Absolutely. And by the way, so if you, uh, this area of Mount St. Helens, this gorge there where this uh, account took place, it's now called Ape Canyon after uh, this, uh, this written account, this wow. sighting. So, you know, you know, if you go on Google Maps and type in Ape Canyon, Washington, you'll actually see where this occurred. They... Uh, I would have to say, would you agree with me that there had to be some legitimacy to this to rename a canyon Ape Canyon? Yeah, and there's a lot of activity since that point in time of other sightings in that area. Again, it's a very rural part of uh, Washington State in the Pacific Northwest. Wow, that is just incredible. All right, so let's get into the story a little bit. And this, uh, this story um, was relayed uh, or retold uh, out of uh, the Oregonian newspaper archives by a modern-day Oregonian reporter by the name of Douglas Perry. Fantastic. So he says, um, that's where in the summer of 1924, a group of gold prospectors stumbled out of the woods, shaking and glassy eyes, 
to tell of a seven-foot-tall ape-like animals, or I'm sorry, to tell of seven-foot-tall ape-like animals attacking them with boulders. Wow. Yeah. And the gentlemen were Fred Beck, Gabe Lefevre, John Peterson, Marion Smith, and Smith's son, Roy. And they described coming upon gorilla men near where they had built a small cabin for their gold hunting forays. Holy smokes. Yeah. Uh, They claimed that they were eight miles from Spirit Lake when they encountered four of the giant animals moving through the forest with erect human-like strides. They were covered with long black hair, the Oregonian reported, relating to descriptions offered by the men. This part's really interesting, too, Bill. They say their ears are about four inches long and stick straight up. So, wow. you know, I, I don't know if you're seven feet tall, maybe your ears are four inches. But it's kind of interesting that they say that they stick straight up. Like, I don't think they're quite big enough to be like rabbit ears, but maybe they're like Mr. Spock ears. <laughs> yeah, like an eight-foot-tall hobbit with furry, furry pointed ears. You know, it's really, I, I tell you what, man, it's really cool that there was four of them. It was like a band of them uh, yeah. traveling somewhere. Maybe they were relocating or something like that when they ran upon them. Who knows? Who knows? So speaking of your uh, seven-foot-tall hobbit, it's interesting. The next part of the description, they say they have four toes, short and stubby. So, you know, I don't know about you, Bill, but if I saw these eight men coming down the path (laughs) in uh, southwestern Washington, I hope they're going by the footprints that were left behind because I don't think I'd be saying, hey, Bill, look at that. I think they only have four toes and they're kind of short and stubby. (laughs) <laughs> now you know that's that's kind of odd too because everything that we have today as far as casting uh shows a five toe uh spread yeah uh very similar to our own uh but uh all the castings that i've seen and all the descriptions i've heard uh relative to these uh footprints the the toes are very broad and stubby uh, and generally, the great toe is kind of angled inward a little bit in many of the accounts. Uh, so this idea of a four-toe, uh, I don't, you know, obviously we only know what you have. Exactly. Perhaps the one track they saw, maybe this was a deformity. Maybe that particular animal was missing a toe or had lost a toe. But yeah, it's, it's interesting, but the, the comment about the ears and the comment about the toes are in quotations from the original account. Yeah, yep. So it's odd. Yeah, you um, can only, look, you can only report what you see, right? Oh, exactly, exactly. So it's an interesting set of details. Yeah. The, so the witnesses estimated each animal weighed about 400 pounds. Wow, so that's not, incredible. not, you know, huge, 400 pounds at seven feet tall. Right. Kind of a, a slender uh, uh, family of Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, the other, you know, here's the thing, and, I, and, and I'm thinking about this as you're talking about this 400 pounds. You know, most of the accounts that I have in the books, people register this thing as 1,500, 1,000, 2,000 pounds. And I'm wondering, hearing what you're saying, if they're just not overwhelmed in the moment, just trying to tag and identify something they're seeing that's absolutely out of their realm of thinking in its immensity and its size, and they just throw a label on it like this thing was 1,500 pounds, you know, as big as a moose. You, you follow what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. I, I think weight uh, especially is completely subjective, right? right. Trying to trying to look at something walking towards you that is an unfamiliar creature, right? Like we can estimate human weight when we look at human, other humans because, you know, we, we know what we weigh, we know what other members of our family weigh, and we can kind of guesstimate and approximate based on what we see compared to other humans we know. Right. But when you see these giant furry or hair-covered ape-like creatures, eh, that's a little more challenging. Yeah, no, you're spot on with that. And if you think about it, 
even if this was accurate, let's just say 400, 500, 600 pounds, somewhere in that neighborhood, at seven feet tall, that is one enormous sucker. I mean, if you had a man in front of you, uh, one of these giant human beings uh, coming at you at 500 pounds and seven feet tall, that is one big bubba. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, um, you know, back to the account. Uh, Taken aback by the sight of these huge beasts, Fred Beck fired his rifle at one of the creatures and struck three times. The wounded animal toppled off a cliff. And uh, they note here in the article that Beck reportedly claimed later, years later, that another member of the party actually fired the shots. So I don't know if he had remorse after uh, uh, shooting at uh, Bigfoot or what, but that's how the story goes. Well, well, it really... You know, really, it doesn't matter who shot it. I mean, one of the parties shot it. Maybe the story got screwed up in the translation. Uh, But the the fact that they bagged this thing and it fell off the cliff is enough for me. Right, right. So they go on and they say they later said that the violence proved to be a mistake. That night, the men said that they were awakened when huge stones began clomping against the outside of the cabin. Then they heard and felt giant bodies slamming against the walls and door. Wow. What they called eight men were seeking revenge. The beasts eventually tore a hole in the roof, allowing them to target Beck. Many of the rocks fell through the hole in the roof, and two of the rocks struck Beck, one of them rendering him unconscious for nearly two hours, the Oregonian reported. Finally, the prospector said the sun began to come up, when prompted the, which prompted the animals to break off their attack and slip away. The men poked their heads out the door, and when they decided the coast was clear, ran out of the woods as fast as they could. Wow. You know, I don't understand though, why there's nothing in there about these guys throwing lead through the walls of the house or the ceiling. <laughs> I mean, really, I, if you were in there... Uh, maybe they were low on ammunition or whatever, or saving it in case these things actually came face to face with them. But I, I would have been laying down some serious uh, loads through the, through the roof and the walls. That's a good point. You already, you know, shot shot one of the creatures three times. You know, during your first sighting, and then when they come back and wake you up, you would think, like you said, there'd be some lead flying the other way through the walls <laughs> of the house. Oh my God! What so a hair all, raise! What yeah, a hair raising account! I know it is. It is, and and it's interesting. So uh, a later uh, um, account uh, in Fred Beck's book in 1967 that he wrote with his son, um, he added some additional details that I'll get into here. But it, it's kind of uh, along the lines of what we often talk about related to if you saw one of these Bigfoot. When would you tell people and who would you tell? So um, Fred writes about that again in this book in 1967, so a long time after his original sighting. He says, when we were back home in Kelso, Washington, he told some of his friends and somehow the story leaked out to the newspapers and the great hairy ape hunt of 1924 was on. Local reporters interviewed us. They came from Portland and Seattle. Even a big game hunter from England came asking questions. And he had a large gun with him that must have been an elephant gun. Many people flocked to the Mount St. Helens area looking for the great hairy apes or the mountain devils. Wow. Yep. I myself went back with two reporters and a detective from Portland, Oregon. We found large tracks, and they photographed them. We did not see any of the eight men then, nor could we find the one we had shot. Wow, that is fantastic. Yeah, pretty pretty interesting account. And uh, again, this throwback to the summer of 1924, originally published uh, in the uh, Oregonian newspaper. You know... Again, I don't. I can't see how these people would be showing up from uh, far and wide 
without having some type of confirmation uh, as to the legitimacy of this sighting and encounter, uh, you know, why would you waste your time and effort uh, looking around on a whim? I, I don't know. There's something, you know, it's an odd thing, you know, and this is why we're left thinking about all these things. Uh, something about it rings true to me, but yet I can understand other people saying that. Ah, come on, Bill. Uh, you know, uh, why don't you give up on this stuff? <laughs> but uh, but I don't. I believe there is truth uh, uh, to what these people reported and what these men uh, saw and interacted with. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, I, I saw... Uh, uh, some interesting writing from the uh, Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization this week. And, um, you know, not related to this account, but related to what you're talking about. And, and they, they, they report that it's a fact that for more than 400 years, people have reported seeing large hair-covered man-like animals in the wilderness areas of North America. You know, and then they say it's a fact that these sightings of these animals continue today. Real or not, these reports are often made by people of unpeachable character. And we've talked about that in some of our podcasts, you know, former senators and uh, folks like that. Right, right. And, and then he, they go on to say uh, it's a fact that for over 70 years, people have been finding, photographing and casting sets of very large human shaped tracks. Uh, most are discovered by chance in remote areas, and these tracks continue to be found to this day. So, you know, whether you believe or not, I, I think it, those are some interesting facts that the uh, Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization, you know, put together. Yeah, you know, if you could turn back to hands of time, first of all, uh, people uh, not too long ago had no plaster. Uh, plaster of Paris, uh, whatever the medium may be, carrying it around in the woods to make molds of footprints. You simply had uh, wilderness hunters, pioneers, uh, the earliest of the white people in this country going back a a few hundred years, and then, of course, the Native Americans uh, seeing tracks, identifying tracks, just like they would any other animal. And uh, the record speaks for itself that there are tracks of huge uh, human-like footprints being found both then and now. And all you're left with is the, uh, the thought process of what do they belong to? Exactly. You, can't, you, you can't but accept what it is and then try to say, okay, now we found them. What leaves these prints? Yep. No doubt about it. Wow, that's incredible. So that's a great uh, great account there from uh, this week's Cryptids in the News going back to the summer of 1924. That's fantastic. All right, so you're ready for action. I'm ready. I'm buckling up. Okay, so <laughs> I have a fantastic uh, account here uh, that was told to me by Ty Nichols, a resident of the great state of Missouri. And... Uh, This is what Ty had to say about his rather terrifying encounter. If this had been told to me by someone else, I would have have told them that they were full of manure to their face. And yet, having endured what I am about to tell you, my outlook on such matters has changed dramatically. My uncle Tex had a large tract of land in northern Missouri. The land was no longer used for farming and had well grown in over the course of several decades, with all kinds of bramble and brush as you would well imagine. He and his cronies had built a sturdy blind house for deer season near the edge of the field, which other than during the season sat idle. This was a 10 by 10 foot house built on stilts that sat about 15 feet off the ground. It had a welded steel ladder that came up through a hatch in the middle of the floor for entry. Now, my uncle, prior to the season, would put feed out in various locations to see what type of racks were coming into the field. He also planted some vegetation, 
which the deer loved to eat. I had stopped by his house to inquire of what he had been seeing and to ask him if my buddy and I could make use of the blind in two weeks. He said that I could, and he also told me that there were a number of really nice bucks, including one that he said was at least a 12-pointer, which he had seen only once. It was Friday, two weeks later, that my buddy Randy and I had entered into the blind at 4 a.m. It was a dreary day that was cold and damp. As we sat in a blind and daylight began to break, we had seen a number of really decent bucks, but the two of us had been blinded by the thought of the 12-pointer that my uncle said that he had seen. After about four hours, we decided to climb down and come back later in the day for another shot at the 12. We stopped in to visit Uncle Tex and told him what we had seen around. He asked us why we didn't take one, so we told him that we were hoping for the 12. He just smiled and said that I hope you have made the right choice. He was right in that there were a number of bucks that anyone would have been proud to take down, and yet we had passed. At three o'clock, we were back in the blind. It had gotten even colder. The sky was gray and the wind was howling through the blind, which had open window flaps on three sides. The sun began to drop quickly from the sky when Randy said that he had eyes on what he believed was the 12-pointer, but it was far away. I confirmed it by putting my scope on him. He was 400 yards out. It was difficult to determine what he would or would not do, but we were content to wait and see how things panned out. Again, we had decided to pass on a couple of really nice bucks in hopes of getting this 12. This blind that we were in was built about 20 feet away from a tree line. The left and right-hand side windows were facing looking down each side of the tree line and the front opening faced the field. We had ridden over to the blind on a quad that was parked behind us in the woods out of sight. I estimated that we had about 20 minutes of light left and the blind was already getting dark inside. I put my scope on the buck and he had closed the gap to about 300 yards plus or minus. I decided I was going to take a crack at him. I was leaning my rifle on a uh, tripod getting ready for the shot when suddenly something jolted the stand and the whole house shook. The two of us looked at each other and Randy said, was that an earthquake? At the very same moment, I saw all of the deer that had been near to us scatter out into the field. The jolt was so strong that my tripod collapsed and I almost squeezed off a round that was chambered. We had barely gathered our composure when the entire structure started to shake violently to the point where we were being tossed around inside. Our guns went flying and I banged my head against the sidewall as Randy fell off of his stool and went tumbling backward. I could hear what sounded like the ladder being ripped off at the same time a loud and gruff-sounding growl was occurring. The only thing that I could think of was that a huge bear was attacking the stand. Randy shouted, damn it, my wrist. Suddenly the whole structure began to lean over and came crashing to the ground. I went flying headlong into the front wall, smashing my face against some braces and actually broke my nose. Randy had apparently broken his wrist. And when the building toppled, he caught an exposed nail right in the side of his head. Randy was writhing in pain while blood was pouring out of my own nose. When the blind had hit the ground, the trap door had sprung open in the floor. And as I looked out, I saw a Sasquatch moving away into the woods, and I couldn't believe my eyes. Frantically, I started to look for my gun, which was actually behind my head after the crash, and I grabbed it. Pointing the business end out of the hatch, I squeezed off the one round that I had chambered in the direction of the Sasquatch. As soon as I pulled the trigger, this beast went into overdrive and was gone. As I tried to make my way over to Randy, I stepped on another nail, taking it right through my boot, 
and tore the back of my hand open on another one. I should tell you that there were nails coming through the siding everywhere. And I guess nobody ever gave thought to people being in here when it tipped over and having to deal with them. When Randy and I finally made it out of the side window, we looked like we had a fight with some junkyard dogs. Randy asked, what did you fire at? I told him a Sasquatch, and his eyes became as big as saucers. He said to me, you shot a Sasquatch? I told him when the building hit the ground, the floor hatch flew open, and I was looking directly out of it at the Sasquatch in the trees. I then scrambled to find my gun and pulled the trigger right out of the hatch. I was now bleeding from my nose, hand, and foot, and Randy was holding his wrist, and the entire side of his head was soaked in blood. I took my rifle and left his behind. The two of us got in a quad and headed back to my uncle's house, and as we were approaching, he had obviously heard us coming as well as the shot fired. When we pulled up, his first words were, What happened to you guys? We were bleeding and wounded, and he knew it. I told him that we were attacked by a Sasquatch in the blind, and the whole structure was knocked to the ground. He hustled us inside, and we all took a ride to the hospital, and my aunt was beside herself at the sight of us. The next day, my uncle and I took the pickup out to the scene of yesterday's melee. The house was as we had said, and the inside had blood everywhere. Randy's gun and the rest of our gear were still inside. I pointed in the direction where I saw the Sasquatch and that I had fired the round. As we looked at the blind, two of the legs had been snapped cleanly through. The other two were pulled out of the ground with the concrete footings still on them. There were large footprints all around the back where the building stood, as well as underneath where the ladder had been. The ladder itself was torn free and thrown off to the side. My uncle stood there and said to me, It's not that I didn't believe you, but I never expected to be standing here seeing such damage. You boys are lucky to be alive. The strength that this thing must possess to wreak such destruction is incredible, to say the least. These 8 by 8 posts are snapped like twigs. I told him, as I soared through the hatch, it appeared to me to be 10 feet tall and as big as a moose. And when I fired the round, I wasn't using the scope and actually thought that I had hit it, but it kept running. We went out into the trees looking for the area where it may have been hit, and we did find some blood. Who knows where I shot it, but the fact that something could run away after being hit with a 30-odd six is in and of itself amazing, to say the least. The blind is still laying on its side where it fell to this very day. Holy cow. Yeah, I mean, just like you talk about these guys, these uh, gold miners out there uh, being attacked in the cabin. This is virtually the same scenario. And I had no idea that you were going to be bringing uh, the story that you did today uh, to the table here. And of course, you had no idea what I was bringing. Yeah, that's that's worth uh, us reiterating for our listeners that, you know, Bill and I do this podcast together over uh, Skype. Um, but I'm in North Carolina. He's up in New York. And we intentionally don't tell each other what we're going to talk about that week, other than like I told him the year that it occurred, um, but I didn't tell him, uh, you know, the details of it, and I have no idea what account he's going to talk about. So yeah, Bill, it, they are, it is similar, but you know, this account is absolutely terrifying in that they're up in this tree stand, you know, which, um, I mean, what's worse than being attacked while you're in a cabin? Well, how about if you were 20 feet up in the air? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just bizarre. And and obviously, I, I can relate to the exposed nails. I mean, uh, we don't know the details of how this thing was built, but if they did put some type of siding over plywood on this uninsulated stand, I can imagine there'd be a couple of thousand nails poking through the inside. But like he said, nobody's ever thinking of 
this thing toppling over and you now having to deal with all these freaking nails sticking out. No, that's exactly right. I, I was thinking about while uh, you were going through that account, some of those tree forts that we used to build when we were kids, you know, uh, oh, much yeah. too high and always nails sticking through the side because you never thought you were actually going to fall and land on the side of the thing. Exactly. No, and even when you were in it, you had to be careful. Oh, Sometimes absolutely. you'd you'd forget yeah. and walk over there or swing your hand and get gashed. Yep. Yep. And wow. And then taking a nail in the side of the head, like oh, you know, no wonder why there was so much blood there when they came back. Yeah. Well, you know, what are you gonna do? You know, and the one guy smashed his nose, yeah, and the other guy nose broke his and wrist. Nail in the head. That's a lot of blood. Yeah. Holy smoke! But look, you're falling 15 feet. He said the thing was built 15 feet off the ground. Okay. The thing starts to lean and then go over, uh, and now you're off your feet. You're flying into the side of the building, tumbling around. You've got a rifle in your hand. Everything's going ass over tea kettle. And now you're laying there trying to... I'm sure they, they must have had other puncture wounds in their body, too. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. But uh, And the strength of this freaking monster... Uh, basically just to be able to rattle this thing and then just to tear it down. And, you know, there's so many accounts where these creatures seem to be offended uh, by people hunting in their area or being in their area. It's like they know what they're there for. Uh, Maybe they're interfering with their day's hunt uh, and they get PO'd at the presence of human beings. I mean, it certainly could be. I, you know, I thought another interesting aspect too was uh, was the gentleman's name Ty. Yeah, Ty T Y from Missouri. Uh, yep. So I thought it was interesting how he said, you know, I would not have believed this, you know, if I was listening to the story. Um, and then also that um, when uh, his, his relative, I forget, was it his father that came out to? Uh, yeah, his uncle. His he uncle said it was his uncle. Came yep. out the next day and he was saying that, you know, I wasn't sure whether to believe you guys or not. But certainly then after seeing the wreckage, the carnage uh, after this happened, um, then, you know, no, no issue with uh, believing the situation. Yeah, well, look, first of all, even if you had thought, uh, why would they do that? Why Why would they wreck this story up? Exactly. Yeah, and why would you wreck your blind? Uh, And then the amount of effort, he's talking about huge, thick posts that this thing was built on with concrete that they were buried in, Uh, a a ladder, some type of metal ladder of some sorts being ripped from the house. And then even if you were going to stage such an elaborate... uh, load of bunk why would you then bust your nose and break your wrist (laughs) i mean it's just not it's just not feasible you know no i i thought it was interesting too where the whole thing jolts you know and and logic says okay maybe it was an earthquake you know is this an earthquake or you know maybe a huge bear um but you know completely odd feeling right when you're sitting in a tree stand and all of a sudden the whole thing you know, jolts to the side enough to knock knock your rifle off of the tripod. Yeah, that's very bizarre and totally freaking frightening. Crazy, yeah. Yeah, so uh, that's just phenomenal. Well, what do we have today? Where are we going? Yeah, so, uh, well, we got a lot of mail in uh, okay. this week. So thanks to everybody for your, uh, your uh, feedback and emails on our website. Bill, maybe you could give them the uh, website address. Yeah, uh, it's BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com. Yep, all one word, no punctuation. Right, just go there. We have a contact uh, link on there. You just click on it. We're glad to hear from you. Tell us anything you have to say. Uh, Certainly, if you've had a sighting or an evidential find of any kind, we want to talk to you. Uh, we do our best to kind of weed out. Uh, I had a guy contact me a number of weeks ago. Uh, he's, I called him back. We had a lengthy conversation on the phone. And, uh, to be honest with you, I determined that this guy was full of beans. I had asked him to, uh, produce a couple of things for me, which he had already offered, 
uh, and I contacted him two or three times uh, after having spoke to him, and he never got back to me. Yeah, yeah. So in that situation, uh, having already offered uh, what he said was a photograph, uh, a friend who had also had some type of encounter... Uh, he seemed very honest and forthcoming, and then uh, when I put him to the test, uh, he couldn't produce. So trust me, my listeners, when people come forward with stuff, I do a fairly rigorous interrogation in a nice kind of way to kind of settle in my own mind and heart uh, as to the veracity of what's being said. And basically, that's all we can do. Uh, you can't, you really can't go beyond certain boundaries when you're dealing with your fellow human being and trying to determine truth or not. And no, it gets and back yeah, to, we love the feedback and, um, you know, we're always saying if you see something, say something, but we do our best to separate the wheat from the chafe. Absolutely. Cool. All right. Well, we have listeners all over the world. Uh, certainly the majority are in North America. No surprise there. But we get some emails from all over the place. So the, the first one this week, Bill, is from Bart in Holland. Uh, wow. And he says, are there any reports of attacks on humans by these beings? And of course, we just had one here today. He says the podcast is fantastic and actually quite funny at times. Have you considered comedy as a profession? <laughs> no, we're not. We do our best to make it entertaining, but I don't think we're ready to have comedy as a profession, as as I'm sure some other folks that send in mail will attest to. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no but, doubt about it. And Bart, we're glad to have you on board. And uh, like Kevin just said, we just gave you uh, an account of uh, uh, a fairly ferocious attack being uh, waged against these two hunters in a blind. But this is not a, a solo event by any means. Uh, again, if you read any of my books, uh, there are many assaults on human beings contained therein, uh, some of them more vicious than others. And uh, my belief is and has always been that when you're dealing with an animal, some are more friendly and some are obviously not. So, as my friend Joey used to say, if you don't want to get framed, stay out of the picture. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying, Kev? Sounds like Joey from New York. Yeah, Joey. <laughs> hey. hey, Joey boy. <laughs> All right. All right. So, we got another note in here from Rich. Rich doesn't specify where he is. Um, but he, he references back to an early question we had after one of our first podcasts uh, from Reggie. So Rich writes, Reggie's question regarding Bigfoot in Australia. I believe down under they're called Yowie. I'm probably the 913th person who has sent you similar emails to you on this, but just in case. Glad you decided to do your own show. Keep it going. Thanks, Rich. So, uh, Rich, thanks for the feedback. Thanks for the email. You weren't the 913th, but you certainly weren't the first. Uh, <laughs> but I think it was in our fourth podcast, after uh, receiving this question from Reggie, we actually did a uh, Cryptid in the News segment on Yowie from down Yes. <laughs> so if you missed that one, check it out. Yeah, absolutely. And it's great to hear from these people. You know, really fantastic. The the uh, the variety of people in the countries they're uh, listening in is just incredible. Yeah, yeah. All right. And now we go to Tunisia. Uh, wow. From Cyrene, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, in Tunisia. I, I love this podcast, and you guys are fantastic. Well, thank you, Cyrene. Uh, for the most part, it seems as though these creatures are found in America. Why do you think that is so? Wow. Well, first of all, Tunisia. Kev, isn't that over where uh, Rommel and uh, Montgomery yeah. were duking it out? I think you're right. The Desert Fox. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Tunisia. Holy smokes, you know, and they must be. I don't know if there's any Bigfoot wandering around in uh, Tunisia. But uh, I can understand, you know, their interest in what we've got going on here. Now, you know, obviously we have a lot of sightings in North America. 
and there are various descriptions of these creatures globally, some smaller, larger, different fur coloration. Uh, I have no idea uh, why we have so many sightings here, obviously because there's a, some type of greater population in North America. Uh, what, what's your take on that, Kevin? Yeah, I, I, uh, certainly certain types of environment like the wooded, uh, um, uh, un, unpopulated environment that we have so prevalent here in North America uh, are a great place for uh, Bigfoot to hide out, Sasquatch to hide out. And then also the fact that we have a lot of people, relative uh, large amount of people, that, you know, as a hobby, go out and explore these rugged environments, kind of to get away from their mobile devices these days or, you know, in the old days to go fur trapping or whatever they were doing, exploring, gold mining, etc. So you have the opportunity uh, for sightings in these very rural places. You know, I, I can't really comment on the rest of the world, but certainly uh, a lot of sightings in this neck of the woods in North America, which kind of leads us into our next email. So this one comes from North America, from Trisha down in the southwestern U.S. in New Mexico. She says, I love this podcast and the two of you as well. Well, thanks, Tricia. Uh, where would someone go to have a good chance of seeing such a creature as Bigfoot? Wow. Yeah. Where would you go? I mean, it's such a random event. Uh, but certainly uh, the theater of the Pacific Northwest uh, seems to be the hotspot. I mean, your cryptids in the news account today from uh, 1924 was right over there, Mount St. Helens and the surrounding area. A, a lot of sightings come out of there. But listen, uh, Trisha, there's no way you're going to go anywhere and expect to see one of these creatures. Uh, it is just such a random lottery-like event that to uh, to say, well, I'm going to go here with my uh, uh, 10 by 50 Nikons today and see one of these things. I mean, I'm not trying to talk you out of it, but uh, it's highly doubtful uh, that you're going to have an encounter. But nevertheless, uh, if you're driven to do so, go. But put your hiking boots on and... Uh, Make sure you bring plenty of hydration. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I pulled up, you know, uh, some of the sighting stats that are available, too. You know, we, we talk about certainly no surprises in the sightings compared to what you just said in the Pacific Northwest. You know, on this particular uh, website that I looked at, Washington comes in at 2,000, a little over 2,000 sightings, the state of Washington. Um, uh, Oregon also a little over 1,000. California, and usually we, we talk about Northern California, which of course borders on Oregon with about 1,700 sightings, you know, and then kind of rounding out the list, Pennsylvania, Michigan, you know, we, we talked about uh, Dogman as well up in some of the rural areas of Michigan, New York, I'm guessing that's not where Joey is, you know, uh, <laughs> probably, yeah, Joe, probably Joey not and in the five <laughs> boroughs of New York City. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah, Ohio Joe, and Texas, of course, you know, a lot of, a lot of sightings like we've talked about over in the big thicket in Texas. Yeah. Joey said he had a sighting in a dumpster in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> and he swears, hey, was, <laughs> he swears he didn't do it. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. <laughs> Wow, that's fantastic, Kev. That was good stuff. Right. What else we got? Any more questions? Yeah, we got one more question here um, from Drake in my state of North Carolina. Uh, where have you guys been for 10 years? Uh, I've read all your books, volume one through five, some of them a couple of times. This would make for some excellent TV. Have you considered such an avenue? Keep them coming. You're doing a great job. Well, thanks a lot, Drake. Um, no, uh, just like we haven't considered comedy, uh, I don't think we've considered TV either. <laughs> we'll probably stick to the podcast, but thanks for your support, Drake. <laughs> <laughs> you know, once again, I totally lost track of what the poor guy said. 
Besides that, what did, what did he say, Kev? You know, he he uh, he wasn't uh, asking a question. He was just being nice and telling us he liked your books, read all five, uh, one through five. And, uh, you know, he's suggesting we should uh, do something with TV around the books. Okay, so just uh, to answer or to uh, comment on what he said, uh, there's actually seven volumes out now. I just released seven like w- one or two weeks ago. Uh, so stay with that. And as I've said before, uh, I'm in the midst of releasing, uh, the first book in audio format. And, uh, unfortunately we're going back and forth with, uh, ACX, a division of Amazon with, uh, trying to iron out the volume on this. Our first presentation, they said the volume was too low. Now the sound, ed- sound engineer reintroduced it to them and they're saying it's too uh, high. So uh, eventually, <laughs> eventually we're going to have some middle ground and you'll be able to purchase that and I'll announce it. All right. Yeah. Having, uh, having the Goldilocks experience with uh, audio books. <laughs> uh, it's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And by the way, folks, uh, uh, we're approaching the celebration of the 4th of July uh, here in the United States of America. And uh, just to re-up to the listeners all around the world globally, freedom is not free. And kudos to those armed forces personnel around the world in the various countries that are serving to keep people safe and free from harm and tyranny. We salute you. Absolutely. What do you think? Thank you so much for all of your service. And thank you for putting yourselves in harm way, harm's way so that we can... Uh, celebrate freedom awesome good stuff well is that a wrap for today Kev? that's a wrap all right and as we part our ways until we meet again remember always carry more gun than you think you're gonna need sleep tight